Section 11 of The Science, History of the Universe, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Science, History of the Universe, Volume 3, edited by Francis Ralt Wheeler. Physics, Chapter 6, Reflection and Refraction, Part 2. The earliest lenses were made in Europe of rock crystal, although lenses of glass appear to have been known to the Greeks. The lenses of Hans Lippersley of Middleburg, the inventor of the binocular telescope, were made of rock crystal. These small instruments, it is interesting to note, sold at that time, 1608, for the large sum of 900 golden. Galileo's lenses, one of them concave, the other convex, were made of glass. Sparing neither expense nor labor, he succeeded in constructing an instrument which magnified an object nearly a thousand times and brought it more than thirty times nearer. He went to Venice to display his telescope. Many noblemen and senators, says he, although of great age, mounted the steps of the highest church towers at Venice to watch the ships, which were visible through my glass, two hours before they were seen entering the harbor. In the early telescopes, lenses were made with very great focal lengths, the beams converging in some cases at a distance of 10, 20, 30, 40, and in one instance of 123 feet from the center of the lens. These lenses were mounted on high poles, and being unprotected by a tube, gave very inferior results. The purpose of these great clumsy objectives was the avoidance of the color dispersion, which is always observable at the edges of a simple lens of pronounced curvature. Since the prism has shown that the blue rays of light are bent more than the red, they must come to a focus behind a lens a little sooner than the red rays. This is the explanation of the fact that so many common lenses, reading glasses, etc., make it appear that the objects behind them are surrounded by a colored halo. This is more noticeable in lenses of much curvature, for the difference in focus between the red rays and the blue is then emphasized. Leonhard Euler suggests that lenses made out of two different materials of different refractive powers would probably cure this chromatic aberration. He tried to produce such a lens, but failed. A London optician, John Doland, taking up Euler's idea, began a series of tests in making lenses which were achromatic, for example, showing no color dispersion. Years of repeated failure in this direction were finally crowned with success, and Doland produced a lens made of crown and flint glass, which was perfectly free from color and entirely accurate. His accomplishment created a sensation throughout Europe, and greatly facilitated from that time the growth of astronomy. Lenses began to increase in diameter and telescopes in size. Herschel, the discoverer of the two inmost moons of Saturn, added immense concave mirrors to his telescopes, whereby the light-gathering power of the instrument was vastly increased. At Parsonstown in Ireland was completed a gigantic reflecting telescope with a mirror six feet across and a tube 58 feet long and seven feet in diameter so that a certain ecclesiastic, Dean Peacock, once walked through it with uplifted umbrella. 
The achromatic lenses which made possible these great telescopes were likewise instrumental in the development of microscopes, to which they were early applied. The first microscope was constructed in the beginning of the 17th century by Zacharias Johannides, a Dutch optician. The eyepieces of his microscope were made at first concave. Subsequent improvements made both lenses convex. Spectacles were also manufactured with achromatic lenses, greatly increasing their comfort and serviceability. The inventor of spectacles must rest his claim to this honor upon an inscription dated some 300 years before the invention of achromatic lenses. Upon the tomb of Salvino Armado in Florence is carved below the bust of this nobleman the inscription, Here lies Salvino Armado d'Armati of Florence, inventor of spectacles. May God pardon his sins. A.D. 1317. In the tall lighthouses that today guard the coast of every civilized country is found the peculiar echelon or annular lens to avoid the spherical aberration and the loss of light inevitable in refractors of such magnitude as those of the lighthouse lights. These lenses are made in concentric rings of glass which focus in one point, the outermost ring being some two feet in diameter. The light placed in this focus is not too widely distributed and becomes brightly visible over a distance of more than 40 miles. Some conception of the power of these lenses may be had from the fact that when inverted and used to condense the solar rays, gold, platinum, and quartz are melted in the intense heat, and less refractory substances as lead, tin, and zinc are almost immediately reduced to vapor. Far more perfect than any previously produced were the glass lenses made in Munich by Josef Frauenhofer. The talented son of a poor glazier, Frauenhofer combined a thorough practical skill with an unusual degree of theoretical insight. By his invention of new and improved methods, machinery and measuring instruments for grinding and polishing lenses, by his having the superintendence after 1811, also of the work of glass melting, enabled him to produce flint and crown glass in larger pieces, free of veins, but especially by his discovery of a method of computing accurately the forms of lenses, he has led practical optics into entirely new paths, and has raised the achromatic telescope to a perfection hitherto undreamed of. So writes Lomel in his preface to Frauenhofer's Gesellmelte Schriften. Among the many other applications of the lenses which have made a necessary place in present-day life, the camera deserves a special notice. Batista Porta, a Neapolitan physician and contemporary of the great Gilbert, invented an instrument now familiar enough to every schoolboy of a practical turn of mind, the camera obscura. A simple box, light-proof, and painted black within and without, received through a lens the image of external objects, and reflected it from a sloping white paper sheet onto a pane of ground glass in the top of the box, to imitate in the form of a fixed photograph. The beautiful colored image thus thrown on the plate, subsequent artists and scientists have sought in vain. The color photography thus far accomplished has been a complicated and difficult procedure, rewarded by only partial success. The camera obscura may hardly be considered the antecedent of the photographic camera of today, 
which resembles the pinhole camera in structure more nearly. Yet the essential principle of the modern camera was not different from that of the camera obscura. With an adjustable or focusing lens, and the substitution of a sensitive film or plate for the former plate of ground glass, the transformation was accomplished. In modern days, many people take photographs, and there is more or less familiarity with the nature of the chemical changes that are worked by the exposure to the light of the silver salts upon the sensitive plate. If exacting reason, however, demand in this connection an explanation of why the change takes place, it must be answered in brief that the energy of the light ray probably effects a rapid alteration of the structure of the atoms of the silver salt employed, in much the same way as has been noted before, in the different forms of copper and iron. When the velocity of waves of light is remembered, it becomes clear that a one-tenth second exposure means that these atoms have been hammered thousands of times by light waves in that brief period. The art of photography is of very recent development, depending of necessity upon a certain advance in the science of chemistry. Pictures on metal were produced in 1827 by Joseph Nicephore Niepce, whose assistant and successor in this work, Daguerre, has given his name to the improved metallic photographs, which are still called, after him, daguerreotypes. These first attempts at a photograph were clumsy contrivances, requiring from five to seven minutes exposure, during which the photographee must sit with iron face and rigid figure, immovable. The face of the sitter had also to be dusted with white powder, and the print, when completed, was faint and in certain lights invisible, on account of the brilliant polish of the metallic surface upon which the print was made. Tinting the picture was commonly resorted to in the endeavor to make the results more lifelike. From the slow and troublesome methods of the old daguerreotype to the magnificent black and white instantaneous carbon prints of today is a long stride. It frequently happens in human history that after an invention has been made and perfected, the further progress of knowledge reveals the fact that the wonderful invention already existed in nature in a state of development far more advanced. The old scoop dredge, though it still has its special use, has been largely replaced by a huge iron hand, like a man's hand. The phonograph is a clumsy imitation of the auricular nerve and the tympanum of the human ear. The eye has been described as a camera with a self-adjusting shutter and focusing automatically. Without going too minutely into the physical structure of the eye, its essential parts may briefly be summed up. Covering all the exposed front of the organ is a tough, elastic membrane, cornea, which lets through the light, but protects the delicate mechanism immediately behind. This interior part it is, which lends character and color to the eye, the iris or colored ring appearing of various hues, as ranging from light gray-blue, which is largely destitute of the orange-brown coloring pigment, to a brown so deep as almost to seem black. Helmholtz, writes Kajori in his history already referred to, irreverently disclosed the fact that in blue eyes there is no real blue coloring matter whatever. The deepest blue is nothing but a turbid medium. The optic action is the same as in the case of smoke, which appears blue on a dark background, though the particles themselves are not blue. 
or in the case of the sky, which, according to Newton, Stokes, and Raleigh, appears blue through the agency of extremely fine dust suspended in the air. This dust, when illuminated by sunlight, reflects a greater proportion of the shorter waves of bluish light, and transmits a greater proportion of longer waves of reddish light. The pupil of the eye is the shutter, which, by the expansion or contraction of the iris, lets in more or less light to the sensitive film or retina at the back of the organ. Close behind the pupil and its encircling iris, the crystalline lens reflects incident light from objects near or remote, and by the aid of the enveloping ciliary muscle, may be so far contracted as to focus the vision with equal readiness upon a tiny shell in the hand, or a mass of rocks on a far distant mountain. Through the glassy liquid, which fills all the remaining interior of the eye, the light is transmitted to the retina, where a chemical change is constantly being effected upon the exposed film of this optical photographic camera, the optic nerves reporting to the brain at every moment the nature of these changes. With all its beauty and delicate adjustment, however, the human eye has many imperfections. No voice has spoken of the physics of the eye with more authority than has the extraordinarily versatile and learned Helmholtz. To him the eye is indeed a crude instrument. The German physicist indicates its defects with considerable force. A refracting surface which is imperfectly elliptical, he says. An ill-centered telescope does not give a single illuminated point as the image of a star, but according to the surface and arrangement of the refracting media, elliptic, circular, or linear images. Now the images of an illuminated point, as the human eye brings them to focus, are even more inaccurate. They are irregularly radiated. The reason of this lies in the construction of the crystalline lens, the fibers of which are arranged around six diverging axes, so that the rays which we see around stars and other distant lights are the images of the radiated structure of our lens, and the universality of this optical defect is proved by any figure with diverging rays being called star-shaped. It is from the same cause that the moon, while her crescent is still narrow, appears to many persons double or threefold. Now it is not too much to say, he remarks again, that if an optician wanted to sell me an instrument which had all these defects, I should think myself quite justified in blaming his carelessness in the strongest terms, and giving him back his instrument. The mechanical process of the eye has never, until comparatively recently, been understood. Helmholtz and others, basing their experiments upon the observations of Thomas Young, Louis Joseph Sanson, and Max Lagenbeck, have explained the manner in which the eye focuses and the means employed to control the admission of light. The sense of color, however, is still a matter of controversy. The most acceptable theory of color sense is that promulgated by Young and developed by Helmholtz, based on the phenomenon of color blindness to the three shades, which occupy respectively the ends and the center of the prismatic ribbon, namely red, green, and violet. Color blindness to red is common and to green not uncommon, while the inability to recognize violet is known. Young showed that the rotation of colored discs of red, green, and violet produces the impression of gray. These, therefore, may be taken as the three primary colors 
by combination of which all the intermediate colors may be produced. End of section 11.